Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking with one of my uh, hero, intellectual heroes of my youth, the genocide scholar Frank Chalk, who I, I took a class with him as an undergraduate at Concordia University about a quarter century ago, and it had a very, very big effect on me. And uh, this is just, this is a, a great honor. Welcome, Frank. Good to be here, John. Yeah, I can, I'm actually, I can actually call him Frank now, <laughs> rather than Sir or Professor Chalk. So I, um, why don't you, you've had a, an incredibly long and illustrious career, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, yourself, and then we'll get into all the things that we want to talk about. So. A boy from the Bronx grew up in a radical household and thought he might be sent to McAllen, Texas as an uh, internee or that his parents might be sent to McAllen, Texas, way back in the early 50s uh, during the Korean War when subversives uh, had reserved bunks uh, courtesy of the Justice Department and the FBI. So I come to the subject of camps, internment, and refugee centers, uh, having had nightmares when I was a kid about it, and knowing that my aunt and uncle were supposed to take care of me if I was separated from my parents and only they were sent to McAllen, Texas. It was an interesting time under the McCarran-Smith Act. Um, And then the University of Wisconsin, uh, which uh, was a wonderful, wonderful institution and still is, uh, to study uh, both zoology and history. Uh, Finally, uh, fate determined that I would become a historian instead of a medical doctor, but I always have a warm place in my heart for scientists and the work that they do, and I even read that stuff sometimes. And uh, my life changed after I came to Montreal. I came here in 64, and in 78, Kurt Johnson of the Concordia Sociology Department came to have coffee with me after we both returned from sabbaticals, And he said, Frank, 
My department has room in the curriculum for every form of deviance except the one that destroys the lives of the largest number of people, genocide. And it's disgraceful that hardly any university anywhere has a two-semester course on the history and sociology of genocide. So are you interested in being my historian partner in uh, designing a course and teaching a course like that? And I just said yes. <laughs> it was time. Uh, my training had been in African history and the history of American foreign relations. Uh, I had a very weak background in early modern Europe and classical history. But Kurt had a gymnasium education from Germany. Uh, and he had escaped in 39 and made it to Britain a few months before World War II broke out. Lost his... Uh, mother, his grandmother, and almost all of his relatives except a twin brother who'd gone to Palestine uh, on the ticket that was destined for Kurt or the visa that was destined for Kurt. But he was blind in one eye and the condition of acceptance was you had to have stereoscopic vision so you could fire a rifle or aim a rifle correctly. Uh, driving with him was a very exciting adventure. <laughs> I did it often. <laughs> Uh, and I, I, I agreed that his brother should have received that permit and did and survived. Uh, and then uh, from 78 until 1988 or so, uh, we fine-tuned our course. We brought together teaching materials, which we thought would exist when we started and were shocked to discover did not exist. And uh, Luke John Dobrzynski came up from New York to launch his diary of the Ludge Ghetto book that Yale had published. And he innocently, I'm sure, asked us at a party after his talk at the Holocaust Center, uh, what are you folks working on? And I said, we're doing this and that in this course. And he said, you, and have you a book for the course? And we said, well, we, we did our own sort of book. It's almost like a course pack. And he said, uh, why don't you talk to Ed Tripp, the uh, editor, the chief editor at Yale University Press, and tell him I sent you because I think he'd be interested in what you're doing. And it was just a coincidence. I was going down to Yale about three or four weeks later for a conference, and uh, Ed Tripp agreed to have 7 a.m. breakfast with me before the conference began, and we shook hands on a contract over breakfast. And in 1990, Yale published The History and Sociology of Genocide. And uh, until about... Ten years ago, uh, it was the most widely used book in the field. The fact it was published in 1990 and could not have included Rwanda, although it did include Burundi in 1972, meant that more recent books uh, certainly brought more to the table than ours for the second half of the course. So uh, that led us then into other work. Uh, I was privileged to be invited by the United Nations Office on the uh, prevention of genocide, to be an, a contractor going out to do genocide education in places like Kyrgyzstan, Uganda, and elsewhere. Uh, and I've led an interesting life. But yeah. it's not over yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Uh, well, I was thinking about, you know, of course, when Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez... Uh, you know, came back and was for tearful and said, this is concentration camps down by the American border. And immediately there were all these people who jumped on her and said, 
you're not allowed to say that. That's that's you know Nazi concentration camps. And I immediately thought back to the first lecture in your class, where you got up and you said uh, it was very. It was like one of those really really powerful first lectures, and you said, um, you know, I know that. There's probably many of you are here and you think that this is going to be a class on the Holocaust. You know, and I'm telling you right now, um, the Holocaust was horrible and it has some unique qualities that, that we need to understand as, as scholars. But, you know, genocides have been happening throughout human history and uh, long before the Holocaust. And plenty of them have been happening since the Holocaust. So, uh, you need to open yourself up to the idea that this is a, a general human thing that we need to that we need to struggle against and we need to understand. And I, th- I immediately thought of that when they were saying you're not allowed because they were sort of saying exactly what you were responding to in that first lecture. And I guess that was 1995, 96. Uh, but so I mean, what do you think about that that whole sort of situation? Well. The 1995-96 class met with me a year or so after the Rwanda genocide. So I had an advantage over them. Uh, Not very much was known in those days about the uh, planning or the implementation of the genocide. Uh, And I'm sure I pointed out that what had happened in Rwanda was a genocide against the Tutsi and involved crimes against humanity, against Hutu defenders of Tutsi and human rights advocates. Uh, So history, unfortunately, gave me a little bit of an advantage over those uh, young and sometimes naive undergraduates. However, uh, very important in my life in respect to that was to try to understand why the prevention of genocide was important in Kosovo in 1999, which came later, and was not important in the West in 1994 while the Tutsi were being slaughtered. And so we did a project with General Dallaire in which we studied that. It was called the Mobilizing the Will to Intervene Project. And with some very talented helpers, uh, among them Kyle Matthews and others, uh, we accomplished uh, close to 100 interviews with policymakers, uh, eyewitnesses, and others, which allowed us to conclude that the intervention in uh, Kosovo probably would never have happened had it not been for the Rwanda genocide. And the Rwanda genocide was permitted to unfold. Indeed, the Clinton administration actively sought to prevent anyone in the United States government from accomplishing intervention because of the strong Tea Party presence in the U.S. Congress led by Newt Gingrich, who said we can't have endless wars. A year earlier in 1993 in Somalia, American rangers were killed brutally and for no good reason, etc., like moving food to starving people wasn't a good reason in his eyes because they may be with the wrong color or the wrong nationality. And uh, the aftermath of that was a huge guilt trip and should have been a huge guilt trip. So when Kosovo came along, uh, NATO, looking for a purpose following the end of the Cold War in about 1990 or so, said, okay, now we can do something in Kosovo. It's in Europe. Uh, It's uh, following what happened at Srebrenica. 
and we can't permit this to happen. So we had this little window of opportunity, which, by the way, is gone now. <laughs> but uh, you might say the single greatest memorial to the murdered Tutsi in the Rwanda genocide was the prevention of a much, much larger mass killing in Kosovo. Wow. Well, I thought Clinton blamed afterwards, he blamed Robert Kaplan and that book, Balkan Ghosts. He said he read Balkan Ghosts and and that that convinced him that, you know, you should never intervene in the Balkans because it leads to, you know, World War One. It leads to all these like horrible wars and you should uh, like inter people who intervene. I mean, that that's one thing that I've 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 been at kind of. I guess trying to sort of square is all the stuff that I learned like uh, in, in your class and in other from other people like that. And then I, I there's another kind of pulling against another tension, which is, uh, you know, people like Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who he's from Lebanon, which was ter- torn apart by a civil war. And he, more than once. Yeah, more than once. Uh, but he and a number of other uh, Palestinian friends of mine and Israelis have said, you know, if the international powers would just stay out of it, would just if, – if you would somehow kind of build, you know, like, like a mom putting two kids that are fighting in a room and say, work it out, like in a room together. They say, like, if you would – if the international community would stop egging on all of the people involved, uh, they would have come up with a peaceful solution a long time ago. That just you have all these people from different sides pouring gasoline on that fire all the time. I mean, what do you do? You think that's not true? That if you if the international community stays away, you just get a genocide. You just get something horrible. It depends on the case and the circumstances. Uh, In the case of Lebanon, we're long past the point at which the Lebanese can just sort of settle it among themselves. Although one wishes they would, and they should have that opportunity again. However, uh, the fact is that if we look at South Sudan, if we look at Darfur and many, many other places, the Rohingya and in uh, Myanmar and Bangladesh, uh, it's quite clear that without international pressure – and it doesn't always have to be military. Often it should not be military, at least uh, not until you've tried everything else on earth uh, – that uh, people would be slaughtered indiscri- or quite discriminately, let's say, uh, by those we call the men with the guns. Therefore, uh, we could do a great deal more than we're doing to reduce the number of victims of genocide and crimes against humanity if uh, we had the will to do so, as opposed to the opposite, which is the will to just let it happen and not get involved. Mm. So where would you say right now in the world – where are the these sort of the high, you know like if you talk to a volcanologist they'll say well here are the places mm-hmm. most likely to have like yeah. volcan where are the hot spots in the world right now according to you where there, we are at the the biggest risk of having you know putting up some horrific numbers and some really ugly things mm-hmm. I certainly think Myanmar is at the top of the list uh, followed by Burundi. Uh, Burundi again. Burundi again and again and again, yes. Uh, Karenziza, the uh, president in his third term against the uh, strictures of his constitution, which he had changed in a uh, 
violation of the letter and the spirit of the Burundi peace accords, so he's undone the peace accords, uh, is always on the edge uh, if nobody's watching and if the pressure is off uh, of driving out the Tutsi minority in Burundi uh, and staying in power forever if he can. Uh, So we came very close. Uh, I think that Rwanda's intervention, uh, since it has a Tutsi government led by Paul Kagame, who has a very well-earned reputation for military effectiveness and who basically said, if you go there, uh, not only will you have guerrillas infiltrating your borders to try and destabilize the government you've set up, but you're going to have to deal with the army of Rwanda, which would incidentally probably spark a very wide war in central and uh, southeastern Africa. Uh, It almost happened sometime earlier in the case of the Congo when countries like Tanzania and Kenya aligned themselves with the Burundi government. And uh, Uganda and Rwanda saw things very differently. And a lot of what goes on in those parts of the world isn't all about preventing genocide. A lot of it is geopolitical and economic maneuvering to control the rare earth minerals that we have in our cell phones and other materials like uh, blood diamonds and gold. However, that's where I, I would look first. And I have <laughs> Those to, two, Myanmar and Burundi. And, yeah, at the, the top of the list. And I remember uh, a wonderful uh, Quebecois filmmaker named uh, Yvonne Patry, who invited Kurt and I to have lunch with him out of the blue in about uh, 1991 or 92. And he said... Uh, Gentlemen, I'm going to buy you lunch because I I need to pick your brains. I'm going to go to Africa, and I want to make a documentary about the next genocide. And I don't know where to go, but you know where I should go. So where should I go? And Kurt and I had unrehearsed. We didn't know he was going to ask us this. We both said Burundi and Rwanda. And uh, about five or six years later, when he came back with three films that he'd made about the Rwandan genocide, he opened up his talk by thanking us for steering him to the correct place. Uh, And it was kind of obvious that this was high-risk, high-octane, volatile territory. And right now, Myanmar and Burundi are in the same condition. Okay. And so the... The Rohingya, they are what? What percentage of Myanmar's population are they? Like, would you guess? Overall, like they're not a very large percentage, but in numbers, uh, they're they're very significant. And there are hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees in horrible camps in Bangladesh, uh, near Cox Bazar and other locations, with sewage all over the place and uh, inadequate access to good potable water and decent food and stuff like that. Uh, This is one of the biggest refugee outflows we've seen, uh, even in Asia, where in uh, 1971, we had refugees flowing from East Pakistan into India. There were 10 million refugees then, and uh, upwards of half a million killed and uh, tens of thousands of women raped, etc. And we considered that, and still is, probably the single biggest outflow of refugees we've ever seen. 
mean, 10 million uh, actually certified uh, in uh, India. India took on a huge burden, so huge that it finally said, you know, we cannot sustain this. And they invaded Pakistan and assisted in the creation of the new state of Bangladesh carved out of East Pakistan so people could go home again. And we, we often forget that the pressure of big refugee outflows on the host nation that accepts them can often be so great that they'd rather go to war than sustain that burden. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is uh, – Gwyn Dyer has been saying for a while that climate change is going to add to this you know, spectacularly I, because I you're agree. going to have – you're going to have countries like Bangladesh yeah. that are going to be mostly underwater. And That's so right. now you're going to have, you know, not, not 10 million refugees. You're going to have, you know, 50 million climate oh, refugees. Sure. Yes. And that's going to destabilize all sorts the of places. Too much water or too little water. Yeah. Uh, both are dangerous. Yes. Yeah. And there's, there's apparently, I still have not got around to watching it, but there's apparently a British TV series very black kind of British, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, dark comedy or something like that, mm-hmm. which is set a couple of decades in the future. Maybe it'll ring a bell for you. And they have these things called, I think, like, I don't know, detention centers or, mm-hmm. and they're places where they put all, there's all these climate refugees that are trying to make their way to the UK. Mm-hmm. And UK has like set up, you know, bombs in the waters around their place. And then people who get in get sent to these detention centers. And they're basically concentration just like camps. Australia. Yeah, they're like <laughs> concentration camps. Yeah. And they privatize all of them in order to save money. And then they don't have any oversight. And so the private companies that run them can increase their profits exponentially by just not feeding the people in them. Yeah, and so they start, their organs, you have another source yeah, of Yeah, so they just like start... <laughs> Yeah. Not feeding them and not taking care yeah. of them, and it's yeah. You know, I I haven't gotten around to watching it yet. I think because it just sounds like way way too dark. But left to our own devices, we humans can be quite selfish. Yeah, and and quite ambitious without any constraint. Uh, you get uh, the American uh, private prison system, which is the source of many hell holes and human rights violations. I mean, they were not lovely before the private companies came in, but uh, every study I've seen suggests that they're worse since the privatization took place. Yeah, and there was all these perverse incentives where you had judges who were getting kickbacks yeah, just in, like order in, to send, in order to send people to the prisons so that yeah, they would make more money games. off them. You get, a, you get a per capita bonus from the... Uh, companies that organize the renting of the prisoners to chain gangs, etc. I lived in Texas in 1963-64, and and to this day, I think, the Huntsville Prison Rodeo functions with enthusiastic prisoners. Not only do they have a little bit of fun, but they know that the money that people pay for for tickets creates a fund that allows prisoners to obtain eyeglasses, because the state of Texas will not buy your eyeglasses, John. If you foresee imprisonment in Texas, make sure your wife brings you several pairs of glasses <laughs> in advance. Wow. Or else we're going to see you they won't, the they won't. They uh, won't. They um, won't pay. No, no. I mean, that that's called, uh, you know, sort of 
cottoning up to uh, poor prisoners and uh, treating them too well. Uh, so they'll want to be in prison again so they can get free eyeglasses. You know, that's one of the major goals, isn't it? In- yeah, there, there was somebody, I can't remember his name, but there was a guest on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple of months ago, and he said, he was saying all these crazy things, stats about the American prison system. And he said, if you talk to somebody at a call center and they don't have a South Asian accent, chances are you're talking to a prisoner. Mm-hmm. That's like most of, and they can, they, they have call centers in prisons. Mm-hmm. They pay, the prisoners make like pennies an hour. Mm-hmm. And they're basically working for, you know, like graduate students. Yeah. Um, they're working for letters of recommendation and pennies an hour. Yeah, to the parole and, board. Yeah, they, it's this really kind of perverse system which allow it's not just uh, license plates anymore. It's like, it's way, way more things are made in prisons. But apparently one of the big ones is call centers. That's they mm-hmm. set them right up in the prisons. And that once again creates like a perverse incentive to kind of bring more people into the system. But Indeed. but but just to to circle back to the, the whole like AOC thing, like do you think it was appropriate for her to call what's happening down there concentration camps? First of all, let's recognize she is a very intelligent, very articulate, extremely proactive person, and uh, she could be do other. She could be doing lots of other things in her life besides sitting in Congress. She has a degree in the sciences. Uh, she's personable, and she asks good questions not only politically but also, I think, scientifically. So. Uh, she's a member of Congress on a mission. Uh, And I think her mission, uh, together with her sisters from Minnesota and elsewhere, is to set Congress on fire and to raise the profile, as the PR people like to say, of the social and economic issues plaguing my old neighborhood in the Bronx. I I come from a district which I think is embraced by her her congressional district. Uh, and uh, I walked through my old neighborhood a few years ago, and it started like this. Uh, I was doing some work for the UN people, and I had uh, a good part of a day off, and I was near Times Square, and I asked the traffic officer, I said, I want to visit my old neighborhood. I haven't been back there since my parents moved in 1970 to Florida, and I want to walk through my old neighborhood and see what it's like today. And my plan is to take a taxi from Manhattan up there and have the taxi driver drive behind me on the street. And if I get into trouble, he's going to pull up and I'm going to jump into the taxi and we're going to take off. He said, it's not a good plan. It's not going to work. You can't do it. I said, why not? He said, no taxi will take you there. Why? Because he said, it's such a bad neighborhood now that... Taxi drivers don't go there to pick up fares. You won't see taxis in your old neighborhood. I said, so what am I supposed to do? How am I going to get up there? He said, here's what you do. And this is such a great New York story. This guy, it's as if he'd known me all my life. He says, here's what you do. He said, you take the subway to your local station. It has to be before noon. And the best time, he said, I would get up there by about 10 in the morning and be out of there by noon. Because none of the drug dealers are out of bed before about one or two in the afternoon, and you'll be safe. 
So I tried it. So I got on the subway and I got to Mount Eden Avenue, my subway stop. I walked up Mount Eden Avenue to Walton Avenue and I turned right. And the stores were open on Mount Eden, but they were still burned out, boarded up areas, not not as large as they used to be. Uh, and I got to Walton Avenue and I walked for about five or six blocks on Walton Avenue, including past my old building, which is still there and looks just the way it always looked, except now it has iron grills on the uh, first floor windows and the door and stuff like that. But otherwise it looked exactly the same as when I lived there. And I walked all the way over down to 170th Street and then down to the subway or the, actually the elevated, the Jerome Avenue line. And I got on it and... I saw on that walk on Walton Avenue from Mount Eden, which is around 172nd Street or, yeah, about 172nd. But there are many intervening little blocks with names rather than numbers. About three people on the street, three people. One was a social worker and two people were her clients. And one of the old buildings had been turned into a kind of halfway house. And she was counseling them out on the street. And I sort of caught a little bit of it as I walked by. And that was it. And when I got to 170th, it's, again, it's a shopping street, and there were people again. But otherwise, it was like everybody was away at work or in bed, and I, I got to see my old neighborhood that way. So she comes from you know, very active neighborhoods, not just like my old neighborhood, but these are neighborhoods that have uh, high incidences of drug addiction, uh, Lots and lots of reports of landlord violations. I looked up the landlord violations in my old building online, and exactly what was wrong with our old building, only a little bit worse now, was listed on the city of New like York. Like what? Like, uh, like the f- people have problems getting adequate heat, and there are cockroaches. <laughs> okay. Uh, I didn't see rats and mice, but you know that would be next i suppose so cockroaches and, and it's the too same cold. family has owned my building since about 1988 so actually it's fairly stable and i think what's happening is very gradually i have a cousin in new york who is part of the gentrification of the bronx as a construction guy and he's way up north and around fordham road so he's not getting to my neighborhood for quite a while but the Bronx is coming back in the same way that 125th Street in Harlem is coming back or has come back already because you can now rent an Airbnb at 127th Street for a week at a time, no problem. And the owner of the apartment will have a security guy, not in uniform, but a security guy from the neighborhood sitting outside that building keeping an eye on you all the time you're there. I've done it. I know it. And uh, you have uh, African-American owners who are interior designers, as was the case in the place I stayed. And you have all kinds of uh, black upper middle class investors who are uh, renting out their apartments in order that they have a steady flow of income, et cetera. Uh, And I guess we weren't the worst uh, tenants. Uh, We are. I was working for the U.N. when I stayed there uh, on my own hook. And uh, the security guy had nothing to do, and I could shop and walk around the neighborhood. Five years ago, ten years ago, unthinkable, unthinkable. People were living in cardboard boxes on the street, and now it's gentrified. So I don't necessarily call that progress because the people who always uh, lived there and could benefit from the low rents are increasingly gone. 
and uh, you see some of them in Brooklyn and elsewhere where the same kind of gentrification is taking place. So I think Ocasio-Cortez has a lot of work to do. And she got the media attention she wanted. She doesn't say anything really by accident. Sometimes her numbers may be wrong. Uh, Sometimes uh, she doesn't have all the figures that Bloomberg could provide. But her moral sense is very strong and her feel for the neighborhoods that she represents is excellent. And she's highlighting the problems of slumlords, of uh, drug infestation, of a lack of proper policing and corruption. Uh, And she's also pointing out the need for full Medicare, for full uh, health inspection, for better teaching, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, My old elementary school in her old uh, area uh, was closed about 10 or 15 years ago as one of the five worst in the city of New York. Wow. Uh, The PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, was taken over by a crazed evangelical minister who converted the Parent Teacher Association into another agency of his evangelical mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it used to be a very nice school when I was a kid back in the 40s. However, uh, there are really, to my knowledge, is no really good school in that area today, no good elementary school. And the high school I went to, which was not one of the uh, Bronx High School of Science schools, it was Taft High School. So Taft High School was also closed for the same reason that it was uh, producing students who couldn't pass state uh, exams, like the regents' exams, mm-hmm. at the proper level, etc. So now it's sort of three schools. It's divided into many schools, some of them vocational, some of them sort of associations uh, where people get together for rehab and stuff like that. I mean, it had several thousand students. So where do kids go to high school in those neighborhoods? They have to take a bus or a subway. I mean, I could have gone to Stuyvesant. I was accepted. But it would have meant two hours every day on the subway, apart from studying and being in class and doing homework and stuff like that. My parents actually put their foot down and said, no, you cannot go to Stuyvesant, which is too bad because when I got to Wisconsin, virtually 90% of my friends were New Yorkers who'd gone to Stuyvesant. (laughs) (laughs) However, that's another story. Well, you, I mean, you lived through the 60s, through the Vietnam War, through all that stuff. And what I hear from, from a lot of people from your generation is they say, oh, you know, people are complaining about how America is so divided. You have no idea. Like, you have no idea. This is, this is okay, yes, this is bad, but this is not nearly as bad, right? And, and that, that's what I hear most of the time. And then most recently, I've just been uh, reading Jared Diamond's new book. I mean, he's like 82, and he just wrote his, his new book, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think it's fantastic, Upheaval. But he says... Unlike most of the people of, of his generation and, and younger, he says, no, no, no. He goes, yes, I lived through the Vietnam War. I lived through all that stuff. He goes, this is way worse. He goes, this is, he, and he, he says, this reminds me of being in Chile just in the, mm-hmm. in the early 70s. 1970s. Yeah. And he goes, this is exactly like, this reminds me, more, and he's lived all over the world. Yeah. And he said, this reminds me of Chile in the early 1970s where there is a, a total breakdown of 
political compromise mm -hmm. of the ability of people to see their opponents as human beings extreme and, polarization uh, extreme polarization yep. and and uh just just an inability and he, and he goes through all the reasons for this so i'm interested where where do you fall on that do you think this well, is nothing or or do you think there's something special about the dividedness right now i'm going to align, align myself with jared in a minute but let me just say that I had a coddled youth. Uh, my old neighborhood in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s was about 95% Jewish. My elementary school was 99% Jewish. I remember good old John Raymond in our class who came from a Quebecois family, actually, and uh, whose brother played football for the New York Giants and whose parents were janitors at one of the buildings uh, next to the Grand Concourse. And we didn't have much crime, and we didn't have many bullies, and we had pretty good teachers, and people went on to do very good things. So it's where did only, all the Jews go? Uh, to Florida. Uh, all like the majority of the people. That, yeah, there was the a, Bronx. There was a, the... a, a a white flight, uh, and in the case of the Bronx, it was a Jewish white flight. Uh, my father was mugged three times in our old building before he. And my mother decided to leave, uh, and they they both retired. My father retired; he was older, and he retired before my mother. But he was doing volunteer work with elderly centers and stuff like that. And my mother was working as a bookkeeper. And after uh, she had sixty five, and he was by then seventy two. In 1970, they moved down to Miami Beach, and there's some great documentary films about that uh, influx of. Bronx Jews who came to Miami Beach. And the fact is that when I went to visit my parents in the mid-70s, women came up to me because they recognized my parents and they put their fingers under my chin and sort of chucked me or tickled me under my chin and said, I haven't done that since you were in a carriage on 170th Street. <laughs> and and that, was, that was that's absolutely true. I mean, it was just like being reborn. It was like air, airlifting a bunch of a population. It was like the Bronx had been helicoptered up south and landed in, or in Miami Beach in the 70s. I don't mean the years. I mean the street, 77th Street and thereabouts off Collins Avenue. And these were low-rent, uh, small apartments that my parents could afford. And they were three blocks from the beach and – all of the grocery stores with all the foods they loved and all of the old neighbors. And my father, my, my father literally uh, met some of his fellow social workers and some of his fellow poets uh, who he'd been in touch with but had missed for the last 20 years or so and 30 years and picked up just where they had left off. Uh, when they had preceded him in the flight either to the suburbs or directly to Florida. So it was a quite amazing did it, process. Did it change their politics at all? I mean, Not did it change parents. their radical politics? No, my father always... Because if you have to leave a neighborhood because it's so violent, yeah, it might make, you know, what was it like, uh, you know, Irving Crystal's line, right, uh, a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Like, if you've literally been mugged like three times, does yeah. it make you more conservative? Does it? Yeah, there was nobody more committed than my father. Uh, it. I mean, I remember when the Russians uh, marched into Budapest during, uh, in the course of the Hungarian uprising. I said to my dad, "Isn't it time to give up on the Soviet Union?" 
And it took him another three or four years. Eventually he did. But, you know, three or four years was a long time. I think that uh, he would never have abandoned the civil rights movement, just the way I would never abandon the civil rights movement, because it's really inscribed on our souls. Uh, the injustice of the treatment of African Americans is so great that uh, a few muggings really, you might move, but you would never oppose, in fact, you would never cease advocating for civil rights. You would never cease advocating for equal access, even affirmative action when it's appropriate, because you know the history, because you experienced it, because you saw it. And mm -hmm. uh, even before Birmingham and even before Martin Luther King, uh, when I was a student at the University of Wisconsin, uh, a lot of left-wing students got together and we gathered somewhere between four and 5,000 student signatures demanding that the University of Wisconsin ban the listing of residences owned by landlords who discriminated against blacks, Jews, and other minorities. And we were successful. And this was in 1955. Wow. The Eisenhower years. But at Wisconsin, there was a critical mass of students who cared about these issues. Getting back to Jared Diamond, who turns out to be uh, the son of Louis K. Diamond. Louis K. Diamond was a professor of pediatric hematology, a field which he invented at the Harvard Medical School. And he was a cousin of my mother. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of extraordinary. Uh, Jared and I have never met. We've never even communicated. But uh, he's interested in genocide. I'm interested in uh, why uh, some societies come late to industrialization and modernization, so our paths cross many times. And uh, I don't agree with him on everything, but I do agree with him that it's worth studying why some societies possess the resilience to recover from disaster. And I must say uh, there's something in those – my mother's maiden name was Klein – there's something in those Klein genes that seems to make it more likely that uh, we will be interested in social justice. Yeah, well, it, it's fascinating because he was he was on uh, Sam ha Harris's podcast talking about his new book, and you know, guys, eighty two. He's just written this book. He's so on top of his yeah. game. Yeah. He's sharp as a tack. Really, really, and yet he has this wealth of experience exactly. and knowledge that he brings to bear on any question. And so, you know, he lived in, and he speaks like ten languages. He yeah. he speaks Finnish. He speaks German. He speaks languages uh, from you know Papua New Guinea languages. Where he did his original research. Yeah, he, yeah. he just he, unbelievable, right? And so. He, he, it's not just kind of theoretical. It's that he's read so much, he's experienced so much. And his new book, I just find, mm -hmm. he, there's a lot of wisdom that's brought to bear on, on these questions. But he says, uh, uh, you know, again and again, the part of the book that I was actually mm -hmm. reading just before uh, I was, I had the audiobook version while I was walking, yeah. walking up here, uh, he's talking about the United States. And he said, this is... The in my lifetime, this is the I agree with the him. worst, the most dangerous time um, ever. And, and I'll tell says, you why I agree. Okay, with so why him. Do you I agree, agree with him? Because the polar—it's not only the polarization that is more extreme than any I remember. 
it is also the widespread dissemination of automatic and semi-automatic weapons in the hands of people who are vulnerable to conspiracy myths and who honestly believe that all of their problems are caused by Jews or others or black people or other kinds of people who are traditionally demonized. Globalists. Yeah, that's their right. Thing, right. Synonym yeah. for Jews. Yes. <laughs> and, and therefore, uh, I worry about what will happen if Trump loses the next election and refuses to accept the results and turns to these militias and offers them uh, the leadership that they lack that can unify them in a common cause. Have you ever read the Turner Diaries? No. Well, you ought to. I think they're online now, uh, not because I agree with them. It's the exact opposite. It's a right-wing futuristic novel about a race war in the United States precipitated by right-wing militias in order to create the conditions for eliminating African-Americans and others who are Jews, too, who are dangerous for the prosperity and racial health of the American people. And the Turner Diaries includes a truck bomb in the basement of the Pentagon and all sorts of interesting devices. Uh, and they're not, and, and there, there, there are almost instructions on how to precipitate a civil war in America in the Turner Diaries. Wow. It is the Bible. I mean, the two Bibles of the right-wing nationalist movements in the United States are the Protocols of the Elders of Zion – a forgery created by the Tsarist secret police with other motives and then taken over by the Nazis and their followers, and the Turner Diaries. And the Turner Diaries are insidious and speak to the inner fears and anxieties and sometimes sense of insecurity and inferiority, which takes me to a book everybody should read by a woman named, I think it's Catherine Stenner, uh, I just put it on my Facebook page, The Authoritarian Dynamic. In 2005, Princeton published her study based on many, many attitude surveys in North America and Europe in which she really demonstrated quite well that a third of the people in Western Europe and North America are intuitively suspicious of liberal reforms even if they're not subjected to propaganda by people who oppose those reforms. Another third are intuitively in favor of those reforms. And there's a third in the middle, which we always think of as the, as the uh, swing voters, who are just still making up their minds. But it's almost uh, biological. It's almost in our DNA. That well, that's uh, what's his name? The, the ethologist, Franz Duvall. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I read... Yeah, a review that he wrote of yes. this book. Yes, and and he said and he had really freaky analysis of it. He said that um, primates of like us, like Homo sapiens sapiens, higher primates have certain kinds of social organizations, and so we are. Um, if you, if you take okay, I'll just back up one point. Um, you maybe have, have watched the show The Dog Whisperer with Cesar Milan. If you ever watched I have this? on occasion, yeah, okay, and enjoyed it right? very much. And one of the main things that Cesar Milan says is the most miserable dog-human relationships happen when humans try to relate to a dog as if it's a human. Oh, baby, baby, and they, they try and have like an equal relationship with the dog. The dog doesn't know what and to do. And he says dogs. 
don't understand right. egalitarianism. No. They understand hierarchy. And there's a the pecking order. Yep. There's somebody who's above me, somebody who's below me. There's they they don't understand like face to face like they want to know equality. who is the leader of this who's pack running this? and what is my position yeah, in this Yeah. And they pack. feel very comfortable yeah. once they know what their position in the pack is. Right. And he said, but you get these people who are horrible. That's why he says, you know, yeah. I train humans, I rehabilitate dogs. Like, because yeah. the dogs are not the problem. It's no. the human. Yeah. Like, if you're talking to your, if you're, the, the classic case is if you have like a small dog that's very yappy and yelling all the time, it's because you're sending all the signals to them that they're actually the top dog. Yeah. which is really confusing to them because you're much bigger than them and you seem to have all the power. And so they are yelling at everything that comes because they're trying to be the the protector of, right. of the realm. And, and right? if you know these facts, then uh, you also understand that a, a wonderful uh, person like Ocasio-Cortez can also be a menace because she's focused on her voters in her, di her congressional district and they are her first priority. But addressing their needs, say, with giving everybody something like compulsory Medicare and taking the rug out from under private health insurance would be a disaster if we just moved to it instantly instead of trying it out incrementally to see how we can make it work. Uh, because there are a lot of Americans who never want, who can't imagine being without private health insurance and f being dependent on the government for all of their health insurance because they intuitively s are suspicious of government services. They've seen the government screw up and they were born being suspicious of losing control. So they want to be in control. They want to be able to choose everything. Yeah. And we should never call them the deplorables. We should never call them the pathological. It's, they have no choice. So the way to address them is, is like people who intend the best for everybody and who have legitimate concerns, and they do. And those concerns need to be addressed. So if they say, I don't trust government, we should recognize there are times government has screwed up big time. So let's acknowledge that. Now let's talk about having a system that's mixed, like the German system or one of the other European systems, which puts together the best of private and the best of public, and trying that out and see how that works. And mm -hmm. this would iron the wrinkles out of the public system after 10 or 20 years, and we need to do that. Let's remember that the first fully social medicine on earth was in Bismarckian Germany that Bismarck invented medical insurance. And that actually led to the selection of close to 100,000 children for gassing and annihilation under the Nazis because doctors were state employees. They were civil servants. The Hippocratic Oath was abolished by the Nazis. Doctors were told during the Depression before the Nazis came to power, you have a duty to conserve the state's money because of the Depression, etc. And therefore, don't always try to save every life because there is a set of lives of people who are worthless. They can no longer work. They can no longer contribute to society. When the Nazis came in, 
German doctors were already on that wavelength. And all they had to do is to say, when we're at war, we need hospital beds. Therefore, we have to eliminate useless lives. And therefore, you have to tell us which of these patients in the sanatoria and in the orphanages really don't deserve to live any longer. So we free up the beds for our wounded heroes coming back, trying to make Germany great again. So there's good reasons to be suspicious. One should of, be of suspicious. Yeah. One one that's, should be. Uh, well, yeah. that, that's what my my libertarian friends are always telling me. This they're like, you know, look at the body counts of the 20th century for for let's say you know owners of corporations or factories or you know capitalists. Look at the body counts for the biggest body count by far is governments. So why are you giving me such a hard time, John, for being suspicious of governments? They're the ones with the most blood on their hands. I don't want to necessarily give them, you know, more yeah. and more power just so that you can have your Who was it who jailed utopia? all the yeah. supposed radicals in the Palmer raids in about 1919 in the United States? Uh, my father arrived in the United States by way of England after eight years there coming from Russian Poland. Uh, before that, when he was 11. And then when he was 19 or so, he comes to New York. It's 1920. And a year earlier, all the radicals that the Justice Department and the young J. Edgar Hoover could discover uh, under Attorney General Mitchell Palmer, J. Mitchell Palmer are rounded up and without any uh, due process are put on ships heading back to their home countries in Europe and rejected from further immigration to the United States. Uh, who was it? Who interned all the Japanese Americans on the West Coast, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we have good reason to want checks and balances. The problem with the uh, current government under Trump is, and this is transparently obvious, is that step by step, Trump has replaced every member of his cabinet who has any knowledge of history or any sense of autonomy or respects the Constitution of the United States and its system of checks and balances from the cabinet and really conspired to drive them out of the cabinet. So now we have yay-sayers and people equally enthusiastic who are on Trump's wavelength who would corrupt the Constitution and send people like me in the United States to the bunk beds awaiting them in McAllen, Texas, once they clear out the refugees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it, part of the part of that though is the fear, and it's just sort of circling back to what Franz Duval said in this review. Is he said, you know, we um, Homo sapiens sapien, we are capable of having egalitarian relationships and kind of democratic relationships. We do that very well, better than any other kind of animal. However, if we're put under stress we default to hierarchy. Yeah. It is our automatic default. And so if we suddenly feel as if our community is under threat, we default to hierarchy. And so suddenly we, we want, we become like that dog in the, on the, you know, the dog whisperer on, with Cesar Milan. We, we want a pecking order. We want to know that daddy's in charge and we become much more authoritarian. So his, his point was, if I remember correctly in his, his review of that book, was this is not static. 
that you can do like the survey data and you can find that one third of people are have sort of like an authoritarian temperament or personality. But he said, uh, if you get them off Fox News and off, you know, watching these like local news, which is all like, you know, four dead, three killed and this person, all the bad things happened, you know, if you get them on a different system where their limbic system is kind of calming down and they're not as feeling under threat all the time, you might find that those very same people, you know, six months later, don't score the same way on... Okay. uh, They're not as authoritarian. That's an interesting uh, perspective, and I, I think there's more than a grain of truth in it, but I want to disagree a little bit. Uh, and point to some research that was done right here in Montreal by a very fine psychologist at McGill University. And what she did was she took kids three and four years old, maybe five, and she constructed tests to discover whether these kids, when they were two, three, four, five, six, cared about color skin, cared about uh, early perceptions of gender and things like this. Guess what? They do care. When they're about four and five, they begin to care about people looking different from them. They begin to notice it, and they begin to build mental generalizations about that cluster behavior and differences, visual differences and behavioral differences. They begin to think like sociologists in a way. They begin to seek correlations. And this is not necessarily because they're, in fact, she determined it was not because their parents were racist. It was not because they watched Fox News sitting on the couch with their parents or were subjected to this kind of indoctrination. It's a natural human trait going back to the time when we were hunters and gatherers when we had to determine, is that band of people living over the hill, is that the band of people that ate the other people who came down this road a year ago or two years ago and we found their bones? Or is that the band that actually helped us when we were hunting and needed more feet on the ground and more eyes and more arms to throw spears when we were going after the woolly mammoth? Yeah. And are they our friends or possible friends? And they began to look at people And kids do this intuitively. So the real secret is, in order to have children who are not only not racist, who are egalitarian, and even anti-racist, they need to be educated. They need to be informed that it's normal to see difference. It's normal to build models that may not be accurate, that is the way human beings have survived since they appeared on the face of the earth by making these generalizations false or accurate. And one of the functions of education that's often not discussed uh, and is sometimes mistakenly uh, characterized as civics education is not civics education. It's all about the danger that we will create false generalizations out of our perceptions of difference. And so kids need to see us associating with people of every description. They need to know the history of those groups. And they need to understand the positive nature of their contribution to the larger society. For example, in the case of African-Americans, blood typing, 
uh, and doing lots of other wonderful things, including introducing the, the peanut or the groundnut so that we have a source of cheap protein and fat, et cetera, et cetera, George Washington Carver and many others. So if we educate people in our society, we can have a much more egalitarian and democratic society, but we have to recognize we're going to have to do this in every single generation. This is never going to end. This is never going to be over. We have a responsibility in every generation to educate people as they come along and to respect those we disagree with and to recognize that they're not necessarily bad people. I think maybe Biden was trying to say that, although I don't like the way he did it because I know the, the reputa- I know the record at the time because I lived through it of the people that he spoke about. But the key point is if we don't show respect for people with differences like being uncomfortable with change and social reform, we'll never, ever bring them into the living room where we hope they will be sitting with us. Yeah. Well, that's uh, at the at the end of Douglas Rushkoff's new book, Team Human, that just came out in, in January. He says, we have to go out and find the others and talk to them. Like, that's what he says. He's you, right. You have to find, like, the people that that think things that, that make you crazy and you have to talk to them like a human being yeah. and not demonize them. And that doesn't mean that you're going to convince them. Um, and that's okay. Like, because your, your goal should not be, because that's sort of manipulative anyway. Like, you're, what are you, yes. an evangelical trying to save people? Like, like you, um, you don't necessarily have to, like, convince somebody, mm-hmm. like, as if you're going door to door, like, trying with pamphlets. Like, um, but at the very least the way that you talk to that person is going to convince them that I see you. I, I know you're a human being. I, you know, I, I value what yeah. you have to say and I'm, you know, I, I care about you. And let me say something about how we deal with immigration and refugees in North America. Uh, those people I'm talking about who are uncomfortable with change and who fear that their identity is being swamped and that their identity is drowning, etc., have one concern that we need to address, and it should be a concern, and that is that we have no rules, that we have a border that's so porous that basically anybody who wants to come in can just come in. Uh, if we don't establish an effective s- framework and rules, which Trump has resisted every time the Democrats come in with a proposal to make the system more efficient and more uh, operationally uh, smooth. And he doesn't want one because then he loses the issue. We are in big trouble. We have to find a way to mobilize people in Canada and the United States to create a sense that we're in charge. By the we, I mean the government, and that there are rules, and that there are rules that make sense. Now, refugee status is an internationally treaty-based right, and we should respect people who say they're refugees, and we should have judges, immigration judges, who can look at their files and determine whether or not they are genuine refugees, and we need more of those people. And we need hundreds more of them on the southern border of the United States, and we need more of them in Canada. 
And if they determine these people are genuine refugees, then we should accept them because that was one of the lessons of the Holocaust, <laughs> that there were lots of – my father during uh, the late 30s and uh, World War II worked for something called the National Refugee Service as a social worker. He helped to bring in German-Jewish doctors who could no longer practice and live a life in Germany. And the American uh, compromise was that they would be based, with the help of the National Refugee Service, in rural communities that had too few doctors. So he became an expert on all these isolated regions and uh, towns in rural Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New York State and elsewhere, where these doctors proved to be God's gift to humanity. (laughs) And these were people who had been outstanding Berlin practitioners trained in the finest finest medical schools of Weimar, Weimar Germany. And people got much better treatment than they would have received if they'd been in the inner city in uh, Philadelphia or New York uh, and couldn't afford treatment by doctors like these. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw a a presentation by Robert, the historian Robert Abzug, Mm -hmm. where he talked about this once. It was really, really fascinating. It uh, It was just when he was... It was peripheral to it, but it was when he came out with that book, you know, Inside the Vicious Heart. Yeah, yeah. That is such, uh, that, I mean, that's one of those books, like, it just makes the, it's, that is a very, very freaky book. Like, just, every time I describe that book to students, they always, they're all. So if anybody listens to your podcast, John, who comes from the other side of the spectrum, so to speak, uh, I understand your pain. I feel your pain. Uh, I think we do need rules. And we, I think Ocasio-Cortez should be one of the most vigorous advocates of those rules, fair rules, rules that say we're going to have more refugee and more immigration judges and courts. We're going to have no separation of families. We're going to have places where you can have an ankle band that will uh, – keep you on our radio frequency uh, sensor so we'll know where you are and you're going to turn up for your hearing and you're going to respect it because we're going to either put you on a plane or a train or a bus out of here or we're going to get you into the program to become a citizen. And we believe in rules. This is a rules-based, law-based, democratic society. It is not out of control. It's only out of control because some people are exploiting this issue to make you afraid. And we don't want you to be afraid. We don't want to be afraid ourselves. Mm-hmm. We, we don't want people coming in, uh, jumping the queue, when we have thousands of people waiting. We have over 30,000 people who put their money down in Quebec to come in as immigrants who the current government of Quebec just tossed in the garbage. That yeah. is, they tossed their applications in the garbage after they've waited months and years in the queue. And that's not fair either. Yeah. I was actually, I was talking to a friend of mine who's, uh, he, he's sort of, I don't know, he's kind of concerned. He's, he supports the CIQ quite a bit. And um, and he, and his argument to me was, he said, well, look, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these immigrants to Quebec, they're anti-Semitic, they're homophobic. They, he's like, I have like a gay son. I am like married to a Jewish woman. He's like, I don't want people coming in who like hate, you know, hate gays and Jews and don't like, I want to sort of let people into our society. I want to be open, 
but I want to like let people in at an amount that is manageable mm -hmm. where we can like where most of them will assimilate to our values. I don't want to assimilate. He's like, this is not Canada. This is Quebec. I don't want to assimilate. I this like multiculturalism. We all just sort of go off in our corner and do if our own thing. You're a francophone in in Quebec, and you're worried about the future of the French language, and you recognize what has happened in other parts of Canada to francophones who become anglicized. It's perfectly understandable that you want to encourage francophone immigrants and you might not be wildly enthusiastic about people coming and speaking other languages who you fear are going to become anglicized. Uh, I think that's, you know, everybody, I think Charles Taylor recognizes that. I think the liberals recognize that. I think the CAC recognizes that. And I think the Eastern Township Anglophones recognize that. Well, he was saying more than just the language thing. For him, it was not just, yeah, it was not just preserving the language. He was like, we have sort of dug ourselves out mm -hmm. from a, a really bad situation where we were we were mostly illiterate. We were ruled by these like church powers and we had a lot of bad attitudes towards everything, towards mm -hmm. women, towards Jews. Towards and we've managed to claw ourselves out of this mm -hmm. historical, you know, as you know, as Stephen says it's um, at the end of James Joyce's Ulysses, right? Like history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Mm -hmm. Like we've clawed ourselves out of this nightmare. But we don't want to go back. There, like we don't want to go back. Your friend is right that there is a danger. Uh, when refugees or immigrants uh, come from countries in which they feel that uh, the actions of Israel were uh, detrimental to the existence, prosperity, survival of their own people, etc., they carry baggage with them. But the question then is, does that mean, therefore, because when they first come, they're likely to be very suspicious of Jewish people, etc. Some of them are, not all of them, but some of them are, that we should just say, okay, so we don't accept those people. And the French are wrestling with that because they've got hundreds of thousands of immigrants from North Africa, many of whom came from societies that, when the state of Israel came into existence, rejected their Jews. So their Jews came to France to escape as refugees and as legitimate refugees. So now what do we do here? Well, I'll tell you what the Germans did. Uh, and Germany has, as you know, accepted about a million Syrian and other uh, Middle East refugees just in the last five years. So I met with some teachers in Berlin as one of my, one of my conferences on genocide. And at the lunch break, they said, we want to talk to you. We have a problem. We have all these students who came here from Lebanon. And these students we're talking about are not Christian Lebanese, they're Muslim Lebanese. And as part of our welcome classes, or what we call in Quebec, class de coy, we always talk about Germany and the Holocaust. These students have come to us at the end of class, when most of the other students have left the room, taken knives out of their pockets, put their knives in our faces, and said, if you ever give us a lesson again, that makes students sympathetic to Jews, like this Holocaust story you told, we are going to kill you. What do we do? Well, we'll tell you what I, we did. Tell us if you think we did the right thing. So they told me what they did was this. About a week later, 
they came into their classes and they said, uh, we have an announcement to make. After last week's class, some of you did what I just described. So there's something you need to know. The police are outside the building and it is surrounded. And you have to make a decision. I want you to tell me, why did you come to Germany? What was your motive? Was your motive to proselytize for Islam and make Germany into an Islamic state? Was your motive to have a better life and get a good job and marry and have children or what other? So they almost unanimously said, oh, or my motive was to, to raise myself up and to move up through education and getting a good job in a factory and being a good German worker and, be, and all that. And the teacher says, well, did you decide you wanted to become a German? Yes. Well, then, to become a German, you must, it is obligatory, learn and know well the history of the Holocaust because we Germans did that. And it is part of being a German. If you don't know this, you cannot be a German. Now, if you don't accept this, the police will escort you to the airport. <laughs> they really had it organized. And if you accept it, you're welcome in my class. But anybody who does what you people did last week is going to be on that airplane out of here. I said, sounds good to me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's that's absolutely wild. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it was a yeah. big problem. And it's still a problem because well, it happens I, I, all the time. Well, the, the first time I, I encountered anything like that, and I, I remain kind of, to this day, a little bit rattled by it. It was uh, when I was just when I was writing my dissertation and I moved back to Montreal from Baltimore and I was teaching, uh, Fred hooked me up with some, some part-time classes uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in the history department and I was teaching a class. It was, um, it was the, not the survey, one of the surveys. It was a, one of the 300, like sort of, uh, United States, 1945 to present that, that, that class, 300 class. And I was teaching that class, and there was um, – you totally made me think of this with your story with the knives and everything. And there were like uh, a, a sort of like a a bunch of – they clearly felt empowered because they were together. There was uh, kind of a line of these these guys. They were all North African, recent immigrants to Canada from North Africa. Mm -hmm. And they were um, – I would say, you know, if I were to generalize about them, I would say in general they were like quite smart, quite mm -hmm. articulate, uh, and they did. They always did the readings completely, uh, and but they just were so combative. Mm -hmm. Like one of the classes, one of the books that I assigned for that class was Robert Abzug's Inside, Inside the Vicious Heart, um, various other ones. But they just they would say things that were so outrageous. Mm -hmm in the class. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting seeing the kind of the Kuperg, like kind of blue haired nibble ring types, the kind of really kind of progressive lefty types. You better say Kuperg is. So oh, the know. Quebec public research interest group. It's yeah. a very kind of yeah. sort of yeah, uh, far left. Socially kind of, minded. Yeah. Left, uh, left wing organization on organization. campus. They're, they're all over North America. Yeah. They, which gets money from student government. Right? Yeah. Public. Yeah. yeah. And you could see these people sort of, they would not stand up to them because they felt like, wait a minute, you're sacred victims. We're not allowed to challenge yeah. you. But these guys would say things in class like, uh, 
well, I'll give you some wonderful tidbits. One time, uh, I had to actually ask this guy to leave the class. He mm-hmm. said he turned around to this woman in the class, and he said, "Look, I don't think women should be in this class at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're going to be in this class, stop dressing like sluts, because mm-hmm. it's really kind of it's just." Uh, my jaw was just well, sure. <gasps> yeah. like, and I just I I kicked him out. And I said, he "What are you saying?" One of our like most important norms. But but he also, you know, yeah. one of the other guys would say things like, "Oh, the Holocaust didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. They they inflated the numbers like crazy. The Jews, you got to know. I know the Jews. I I know the Jews yeah. from. I'm from Egypt. I know Jews. <laughs> They're tricky. You can't like you can't really trust them and everything. And like." Uh, they would, and then when we were going over the civil rights movement and and things like that, they again they'd be like, "Look, I'm from Africa. I can tell you why the blacks are not doing well. Mm-hmm. It's because they're lazy." Mm-hmm. And because, just these outrageous, yeah. outrageous things, unfiltered, unfiltered, uncensored, anti-Semitic, yeah. like misogynistic, yeah. racist kind of comments that they would say. And I, and this is, you know, this was in two thousand. 2002, 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting looking back now mm-hmm. and seeing how messy things have got now with like Antifa and these like street f- protests and stuff like that. Because even then, mm-hmm. these hardcore kind of, I am like, you know, a, you know, very, very, very far left people in the class, mm-hmm. they did not seem to have the equipment to challenge them yes. and it's not that they were cowardly because i would see them in another class and if it was like a white guy from like kirkland well, saying right that on top they'd be on him right. like a duck on a june bug yeah. like yeah. they would be all over him they would be jumping all if it was rachel from nova scotia they'd be all over her yeah but for some reason they're like you are victims of horrible you it's know, ambivalence. And and so yeah. they did not yeah. know how yeah. to actually no. respond. They're like, we're supposed to be open, we're supposed to be cognitive dissonance. Uh, yeah, big time. Yeah. And it was uh it was one of my worst teaching experiences ever was mm-hmm. that class. Mm-hmm. I had Did they uh, finish the class? Yes. They finished the class. Uh their work was well, in generally great. very was yeah. in general very good. Mm-hmm. Um, although they did have some sources. I made them come and see me first because yeah. they had sources that were just <laughs> You know, straight up like racist, crazy yeah, sources right. yeah. um, that they would. But you know, it definitely it was a it was a challenge to me in a number of different ways. But it was at the most basic level, it was a challenge to the Enlightenment idea, the Socratic mm-hmm. idea that all evil in the world is a function of ignorance mm-hmm. or stupidity. Because they were very smart and quite well read and quite you know they were articulate and they had crazy ideas Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so the idea that somehow well you're just ignorant you're just not paying attention no i mean they most of them what do you think they took away from your class what do you think they believe about those issues today i don't think my class changed their Mm -hmm. views at all i think um I think the experience was was probably radicalizing for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. It was I know uh two students um two just to give you an example, mm-hmm. two students that were in that class, mm-hmm. one of whom who was brought brought up who's Jewish, who's quite orthodox. I was brought up quite orthodox. He at that point was completely in rebellion against his family's norms. He told me he's a rabbi now. Mm-hmm. 
he has seven mm-hmm. children, you mm-hmm. know, big long, like though, like mm-hmm. he's like, he said that class was a radicalizing experience for me because I realized even in like a, a multicultural society that's supposed to be so that, uh, there's, there's going, it's going to be difficult for so now, Jews. All right, right. So now, uh, let's say it was 2002. So now it's roughly 17 years later. And, uh, have they met a Jewish person in Montreal in the course of their work or in the course of their residence? Probably. Probably. It'd be pretty hard not My to. My experience with them, and you know, and I'm mm-hmm. glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. My experience with them, and one guy in particular, who mm-hmm. I had a lot of frustrating... Mm-hmm. I, we ended up like getting together a couple of times after the class and having coffee just to try yeah. and... In my naive idea that somehow we could like talk mm-hmm. this through. But... He he knew, mm-hmm. he absolutely. But the kind of the kind of Jews that he knew mm-hmm. um, were Jews who had converted to Islam mm-hmm. and who were sort of on the circuit, on the mm-hmm. on the yeah, circuit giving too many. talks. Right. Uh, you'd yeah. be surprised, yeah. right? I actually like I was telling uh, my wife the other day. I at some point I want to write something on the the way in which every niche community has sort of like amazing grace figures like mm-hmm. i once was lost mm-hmm. but now, now i'm found, I'm found. Right. they have these people so yeah. you can go to like the yeah. anything from like a feminist website they'll have right i was an mra i was a men's right activist but then i saw the light of intersectional feminism and hallelujah i am now saved right? and then you'll go to like the men's rights act and they'll like i was a feminist so there is a there is a real possibility and the odds are in favor they have of people. your skepticism that anything would change through uh, proximity, work together, etc. But on the other side, I don't know. I just some I think them, people find some of them the rationalizers, and, and there right? are the stages in the life process in which some of these people say, "Well, actually, now I worked with this Jewish guy. He really helped me when I came to that business or that office." Or school, and he helped me with my homework, or he did this, or he did that. It was nice. But, you know, he, he's special. He's not like the others of that, whatever the group is. Yeah. So he's special. So then, you know, they sort of say, yeah, one or two of them are okay. But then uh, you also have the overall experience of something like a free media. So he also gets to see what other people from whatever the group is, whether it's Jewish people or black people or other kinds of people, and he begins to see that the spectrum within that group is quite broad. And yes, of course, there's some bad apples, but in fact, uh, many members of that group are doing all kinds of good work. So he's got to think about it. So does he develop cognitive dissonance based on his old beliefs, and does he evolve? Some will, some won't, right? But what about his kids? What about his kids? They're growing up in Montreal. They're going to school in Montreal. Whether it's a French school or an English school, there's diversity. There are people from all kinds of backgrounds here. I mean, if you wanted, if I wanted to take uh, some of those people that we were talking about earlier from Arkansas or from Georgia or Alabama or Texas, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I would bring them to Montreal with their families and have them go to school here and work here 
And I think they would discover that even if they tried to isolate themselves and exclusively circulated among members of their own group, they would have to recognize that their stereotypical vision didn't tell the whole story. And even that would be progress. And I think over two or three generations, things would change. I mean, there, there's no doubt that not only do we recognize difference, but we stereotype difference. Those generalizations are stereotypes very often. And what it takes to break a stereotype is, and you know this, John, from your study of history, that the paradigms shift when they crumble from within, when reality does not correlate with what you are actually experiencing and the historical examples that are, you can't have a million exceptions. You can have one or two or three or four, but the paradigm collapse takes place. So uh, because we're human beings, because we're problem solvers, because we are always correlating what our generalization is with what we see in order to survive better and to prosper, I, it's not faith. It's not, it's not faith. It's really more an observation of our physiology and psychology. This is how human beings function. You'd have to be living in a hermetically sealed cylinder to live in North America for 50, 60, 70 years in contact with people from other groups and not recognize that some of the members of that group are really quite decent people. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess there's there's two things going on, right? And I, I never know – I'm never sure how to actually sort of reconcile the two. And so, yes, there is a certain kind of um, – you know, anti-Semitism or racism or, you know, whatever, that is a function of ignorance. So if you have people in, like, Eruville that are passing laws against, like, stoning, right, they've never seen – they have, like, the whole town has, like, 20 last names. Like, they they basically – they've they live in a remarkably homogeneous situation. So any ideas they have about, you know, these others are completely – products of media imagination so they're they're looking at things online and they're looking at you know tv and stuff like movies and they're coming up with ideas about like who who muslims are yeah. right and they're, they're, so yes there's and there, there are analogs to that in everything there's there's anti-semitism that has not that is born completely of imagination it's no actual interaction with jews and every other kind of antipathy that humans produce However, there's another and, – and I guess growing up in Canada, I sort of I, – I guess I bought into the idea that if you just put everybody together, they're going to realize they're all human and they're all going to get along great and it's going to be awesome. And I do think that, uh, that mixing everybody together in public schools and, and in institutions and neighborhoods and stuff like that – it does get rid of a lot of the antipathy that is a function of ignorance. Yes, absolutely. However, there's another kind of antipathy, which I've become more and more aware of in my, you know, sort of my 20s, 30s, and 40s, mm -hmm. which is a much tougher nut to crack, which is antipathy that is born of actual bad experiences, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. for instance, the, the most intensely... Islamophobic students mm -hmm. that I meet at John Abbott College mm -hmm. are not people from Eruville. Yeah, they're not random people like mm -hmm. francophones from like small town Quebec. They are um, 
Christians from North Africa, like cops. Mm-hmm. They are, you know, Jews from Lebanon, people yeah. like Gad Saad. Or know, from North Africa. Party. Like yeah. people who've had horrible experiences mm-hmm. in yeah. Muslim majority yeah. countries. Right. And so and and likewise, the the people that I meet, like, you know, the for instance, the executive producer of this podcast, mm-hmm. he's from he's part of the Francophone minority from Ontario. Mm-hmm. And he got beat up by Orangemen when he was a kid mm-hmm. because he was French. Yes. And they would beat him up if yes. they heard him saying speaking French. Yes. So he has like an antipathy towards yeah towards uh i wouldn't say like you're hearing me Claude, but like not towards english people in general but point is is his antipathy towards well, like it, anglo supremacists is not born of fantasy it's experience it's experience yeah. it's hard experience and that goes back to what i said earlier that this is how we survive we make generalizations you're mistreated by somebody from a particular group. You don't say, oh, he's probably not representative of the group. You say, I got to watch out for people who are members of that group because this guy just did terrible things to me. Yeah. That's how yeah, I'm like going Claude's to survive. Yeah, broken. was broken so much it's like this yeah. on the side. Yeah. yeah. From growing exactly. up in northern Ontario. That'll and... do it. Yeah. yeah exactly. And, and that is a perfectly understandable conclusion for somebody in that situation to draw. However, life goes on. Eventually, the question is, do you become bigger than your last broken nose? Okay? Or do you stay there? Are you, is it stasis? Is it stagnant? Are you locked into? And that's not good for your survival either because you're not adapting as you go along. What you're doing is you're looking backwards and you're just frozen in time. And being frozen in time is a very bad place to be if you really want to prosper and be happy. Hmm. Wait, but it's funny because probably in the 20th century and the 21st century, that is yeah. absolutely true. Mm-hmm. For most of human history and for most of the history of life on earth, it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So if you have, you know, like uh, we see this in, in nature, right? You were in zoo- yeah. zoology, right? With mimicry. Mm-hmm. So if you have, there are lots of snakes in North America yeah. that look like rattlesnakes yeah, they, design, they shake they shake their tail their behavior they right. they look their pattern is exactly yeah, like right. there's lots of snakes that look like a poisonous so you get respect snake. yeah right and so if you're it's, a snake, and it's because if yeah. you are if you are a, a raccoon or you're whatever you're some sort of hungry mm-hmm. animal and you um you're with like your 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 group and one of them like grabs a rattlesnake gets bit mm-hmm. and dies mm-hmm. Well, or or almost dies. Well, now you make sure to communicate to all of your children, don't ever go near mm-hmm. something that looks like that. Even if you're really hungry, yeah. stay away. So right. you generalize from yeah. a bad experience. Yeah. And the cost of having a false positive is low. Yeah. And the cost of a false negative is high. Mm-hmm. So it actually, for most of, this is why you know, the, the New York philosopher Aaron Haspel, he, mm-hmm. he says that stereotypes are folk statistics. So you generalize from bad experiences because, um, you know, it. that's a good idea. Which brings us to the mongoose. Lives off snakes. Yeah. Says, huh, nobody is attacking these guys. I've got the tools to attack, succeed, and eat well. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So we should we should eat. Uh, Mongoose has figured it out. We should eat Nazis, or <laughs> if you're hungry, if you're hungry. <laughs> so the I I I have to get this. Like, so was Ocasio Cortez was she out of line in referring to them as concentration camps? In her own world, in her little world, she made the right call. Because she got the press attention, she got us talking about it, she got us discussing what's going on on the border. I mean, I, I took some notes before coming over here today to just see how many people are actually, there's something like a minimum of fifteen to 20,000 kids who the government of the United States, uh, the Department of Health, etc., has in its care at the moment. And that's outrageous. Uh and we know the conditions in those places because they've admitted a few people who've given an honest report on what they saw and have visited a number of places. And I don't want to go into it now. We don't have time. But the, the conditions are horrific. So it was good that she called attention to all of that. But in the larger picture, if that's the whole story, then uh, it's our responsibility to say, Ocasio, you made a good point. Something must be done about this. But there's a larger picture. And we're not going to go from your outrage, which is and my outrage, which is quite appropriate, to saying therefore we're never going to intercept families that are crossing the border without papers that they need, who may sometimes not always be genuine refugees. We're not going to have a process. We're just going to throw our arms around them and say kumbaya, welcome to America. Why don't you come all the way on up here to Montreal? It's a great city. You know, we're not going to do that. Because we do need to have rules. We need to have priorities. We have to decide. And we're just not going to open the floodgates because if we – several things follow. First of all, every society has a capacity to assimilate, integrate, educate, provide health, etc. And at a certain point, we're going to reach the breaking point. So we have to know – what that point is. It's probably a much greater capacity than sitting here we imagine because we tend to underestimate it. Uh, at times, we, we accepted Hungarian refugees. We accepted lots of other refugees. And not all of them had PhDs. But they mm -hmm. did. But nevertheless, they were so delighted to be free at last and that they got jobs. They raised their kids. Their kids are now my colleagues in the faculty at Concordia. And good things resulted. Uh, the second thing is we have to be sure that the system we create has the capacity to adjudicate whether the, the uh, evidence confirms that they are refugees. If we don't do those things and we just leave it with Ocasio and the dialogue of the, of the deaf, so to speak, between somebody who's very polarized and for good reasons and wants to do good things for people in her district, and those who are the know-nothings at the moment and who say, no way can we have any immigrants from Mexico or Central America, etc., then we're not engaging in what citizens must do, which is to put forward knowledge-based, knowledge evidence-based, constructive solutions. So we can't leave the debate to those two poles the at extremes, the extremes. Yeah. We have to occupy the center uh, with knowledge, with dedication, with conviction, and with uh, some smart planning. If I remember correctly, you were one of the first fellows of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., right? I, I, what I was was uh, they'd had fellows who worked exclusively on the Holocaust, which was appropriate. 
But by 2000 or 1999 when I applied, they were ready to have a fellow who worked on other genocides as well. And uh, that was really uh, a very welcome uh, admission to their circle, so to speak, because I was able to learn a great deal while I was there. And I worked on some aspects of the Holocaust, but also on the American response to the Rwandan genocide as well. Okay, because I I thought about that when – because it was the head of the Holocaust Museum in D.C. who – tweeted these kind of attacks at AOC yeah. saying yeah, it, is, it, is, it is outrageous yeah. that yeah. she would make yeah. these comparisons. I'm wondering, like, what the do you Holocaust think happened Museum, there? I'll tell you what happened. Uh, it's a political institution whose funding comes from the United States Congress. Where does that money come from? It's U.S. federal money appropriated by Congress. So uh, this was a knife to their throat, the throat of their funding. And Sarah Bloomfield has to be a great lobbyist in Congress to get the money every year. She has to be a great lobbyist as well uh, in the Jewish community. And she has to be somebody, and she is somebody, who supports the outreach of the museum to work with other communities. And under her guidance, the museum has been doing it now for a good 15, 20 years. Uh, it started around the time I showed up. I wasn't the leader of it. Uh, she was, uh, Mike Abramowitz was, uh, Paul Abrams was, and others at that museum. She fell into this trap okay. uh, in part to appease donors, both congressional grantors and donors within the Jewish and other communities who were outraged. A constant tension at the museum is over the uniqueness of the Holocaust. And the museum has moved a huge uh, way down the, the road to accepting there are other genocides. They are similar in some ways to the Holocaust and different in some ways to the Holocaust. And we need to understand them all. All of us who have a vested interest in preventing genocide in the future need to understand the whole spectrum, not just one genocide. And we need to work with Armenians and Rwandans, who are Tutsis and other Rwandans, and we need to work with Cambodians. We need to work with Guatemalans and with Serbs and, and Croats and Bosniaks, etc., and right down the line. And then we're really strong because we, if we have 10 groups that are collaborating together with people who've never experienced genocide, and there were fewer and fewer actually, uh, then we have the political clout the economic and monetary clout, and the social clout to do great things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I should say that despite that that recent thing, that yeah. they do fantastic outreach. They do. I mean, I remember uh, my, my wife grew yes. up Finnish Lutheran in yep. New Jersey, uh-huh. and she described to me in vivid detail mm-hmm. going down to D.C. with her friend Amy, mm-hmm. and they went to the Holocaust Museum, and they were so completely... Yeah, upset by it because they had grown up Lutheran. Yeah. She was teaching Sunday school at the Lutheran church still while she was in university. She said uh, they had never mentioned that Martin Luther mm-hmm. was an anti-Semite, that he had done all this stuff. Right. And so seeing all this history, she just thought, like, how come nobody mentioned, nobody mentioned that, that to me? Us. And yes. it was a very, very powerful experience. The, the idea yeah. that... Um, 
it didn't just pop out of nowhere no? in the twenty in the twentieth century that there was a long history. The foundation was yeah. was there, and Hitler exploited it and built on it. Yeah, and it was, it was yeah, it did, yeah, but that was and so they are doing good. They are doing good yeah. kind of outreach. And, They're doing great work, but but this is yeah, this was a, a, a black spot. Perhaps it was not a not the. It was the it was a negative spot. That's yeah, it was not did not did not yeah. help. Yeah, but so do you think trying to if you look at the the camps that were set up in the nineteen thirties and things mm-hmm. like that, like leading up to that stuff. Are there any useful parallels to what's happening on the American border, or is that just like a red herring? Let's look at France in 1939. Okay. Okay. So uh, France, French voters swing from popular front pluralities to giving uh, Marshal Patin and uh, the conservative French political parties the government just around 38, 39 or so. Um, The Spanish Civil War is ending with a victory backed by Germany and Italy of Franco and the fascist or far-right-wing Spanish nationalist parties and and military. And thousands and thousands and thousands of political refugees fleeing for their – literally fleeing for their lives are walking across the Pyrenees Mountains into France – and what is French? What does this conservative French government do? These people, some of them are communists, some of them are anarchists, some of them are uh, socialists. Uh, we can't let them just roam around. They're not French French people. So they set up detention camps for them, and they set up some on the border with the Pyrenees, with Spain, some in the Basque country, Pitiv Iver. They and they set up. They take uh, a new suburb of Paris called Drancy and they take over Stadia and other real estate in that area and they incarcerate tens of thousands of Spanish refugees and then later, still under the gendarmerie, the French, uh, Jews who were foreign-born Jews who were naturalized in 1933 or after 33 as French citizens. They strip them of their citizenship because they're not French-born. And about 67,000 of them are put on trains and sent to places like Auschwitz from Drancy and Pitivier and other camps. Uh, The government does not send a large number of French-born Jews to the death camps because it's an extreme nationalist government and it's sort of, for the time being, if Germany had won, it would have been another story. They respect their French nationality and they don't strip them of their citizenship the way the Germans did. The Nazis did that in 33 and 35 with the Nuremberg decrees. First thing you do is you strip German-born people because they're Jews of their citizenship. Now they have responsibilities and no rights. So these camps like Drancy were camps with poor food, poor medical care, Filth, mud, poor protection against the elements, etc. A lot of people got sick. Elderly people and very young people died. And as far as I'm pretty sure, there was no forced labor. They were detention camps to contain the threat, to figure out what to do with them or to adjust the system 
Some of them undoubtedly would have been returned to Spain into Franco's concentration camps, and Franco executed a lot of those people if they didn't flee. They were shot by firing squads. They were tortured and then shot. And at the end of the Spanish Civil War, Franco is, is guilty of massive crimes against humanity, a lot of executions, which are only now being investigated. The mass graves are being exhumed now for the first time. So that is very much like the notion that you define the other. In the case of France, it was the Spanish refugees. In the case of the United States, the Trump government, unlike our previous governments, has defined Spanish-speaking Central and South Americans, and particularly Mexicans, Guatemalans, El Salvadorians, and others, as other. And other means you're a danger to American society. So the Spanish-speaking M13 gangs become all of these people. Every kid is viewed and defined as a future M13 killer. Not true. I mean, it's a big problem in in the Spanish-speaking communities around Los Angeles and other places and on Long Island and elsewhere. So that's not – it's factually incorrect and it obviously is based on prejudice. Uh, So these camps that are holding these kids – separated from their parents. No one is there who's a blood relative who can protect them. So anything can happen there. The counselors can sexually abuse the kids. The other kids can sexually abuse other kids. There can be horrible things. And someday we're going to hear much more about what goes on in those camps, despite the goodwill of probably the majority of the counselors and some of the administrators. The uh, Border Protection Service of the United States did not hire its professionals on the basis of how well they could care for a three-year-old or their ability to change diapers or their ability to spot measles or flu or pneumonia or any of the other diseases that are beginning to be rampant in this group of 20,000 kids. Therefore, uh, we are party to a crime in international and domestic law Some of these camps are actually, for adults and kids, are actually in violation of American law. These people are being deprived of their rights to refugee status, to hearings, etc. They're incarcerated without hearings. Families are being separated that under international law are not allowed to be separated, etc. So the bottom line is, she did us a favor by calling our attention to these conditions, but we can't get stuck in a debate that will stop with whether or not it constitute, these constitute concentration camps, they offend our humanity, which is the basic definition of a crime against humanity. And in offending our humanity, they also convey a burden to us to act, to act politically, socially, economically, etc., cetera, uh, to focus on closing down those camps, but also establishing the rule of law so that there is an organized, fair system that respects international and domestic American law. See, that's that's a, a kind of a balance that I just don't hear very often. How are we going to get there? How are we going to get there I'm, with the, the Republicans in the Senate kowtowing to Trump and uh, the polarization in America? And, you know, thank goodness the courts have now convicted people who are walking around with guns pretending to be the Border Patrol – 
and mistreating these refugees and other illegal immigrants and treating them as if they were garbage uh, and turning them over to people who had no respect for them whatsoever and knew, had no interest in their legal rights. So the American judicial system is still strong for the time being. And uh, I think it, it will be very lucky if we get out of this and the polarization diminishes and people pay attention to what the Constitution actually says instead of their fears over the uh, destruction of white identity in America. Hmm. Well, that's a, a very, very eloquent place to end. Uh, so we'll, I guess we'll, we'll end up there. But before we, before we end, I just wanted to ask you, what are you working on? This is, I always like to ask guess this. What are you working on now? What is your, what has no. uh, got your attention at the moment? I'm working on two projects right now. Uh, the first is a project that has engaged me for the last couple of years, and that is to try to demonstrate to my colleagues who study genocide and who have turned to the testimony of perpetrators of genocides, the ordinary killers, for evidence regarding the motives for their murders. Why do they kill? And I believe they've gone much farther than the evidence supports in accepting the testimony of ordinary killers. So Robert Browning school kind of thing, ordinary uh, man, yeah. uh, Christopher Browning. Chris Browning. Chris Browning, yeah. Yeah. Chris Browning, with the best intentions in the world, uh, took the testimony of German killers. You you assigned that book to my class. I read that for your class. Who murdered Jews face-to-face and killed every single Jew in a village of 5,000 people. There were probably 3,000 Jews, and they killed every single one over the course of an afternoon. Uh, And he interviewed the people who did that, and they said, we didn't hate Jews. Some of our best friends were Jews. We had nothing against Jews. We were following orders. We saw the suffering of our brother killers when they killed children, and we realized that the burden would be too much for them if we didn't share it with them. We felt fear that Jews would take revenge against us. And we believed that Jews were the cause of the Second World War and our families were suffering bombardment and incendiaries that burned down their neighborhoods. And we think Jews started the war because Hitler told us. So that's why we did what we did. We didn't actually hate Jews. And this has now been carried into the Rwandan literature. And uh, often it's Hutu killers interviewed in prison or just out of prison. We didn't hate Tutsi. I was married to a Tutsi. My best friend was a Tutsi. I farmed with a Tutsi. We harvested together. We planted together. We, I liked Tutsi. There was nothing wrong with Tutsi. But we feared they would commit a genocide against us after they invaded Rwanda from Uganda in October 1990. And we heard that they were killing all the Hutu they encountered as they invaded northeastern Rwanda. And if we didn't kill, our neighbors were going to kill us. And they said to us, you must come out on the night patrol with us. And if you don't do that, we're going to kill you as a Tutsi lover. You'll be a security risk. We'll have to get rid of you. So that's why we killed. There was nothing ideological about it. The common thread that links the Nazi killers with the killers of the Tutsi who were Hutu, is that the legal framework in West Germany when Browning did his research and these guys testified 
And the legal framework in Rwanda, when these interviews took place, all said, if you killed out of hatred of the members of the group you killed, because you hated the group, in other words, your motives were ideological, you will be subject to a far more severe sentence than if you just killed because you wanted to steal a cow or you wanted somebody's wife or you wanted their land or you thought they were going to kill you if you didn't kill them. And that, you know, we can sort of give you uh, time served and parole you, stuff like that. And Browning mentions it in passing. And uh, my friend Scott Strauss mentions it in passing in his book on killers in Rwanda. But a few pages later, a few pages later, they kind of forget it because the, the testimony and the interviewing is so compelling. You go out there and you interview 200 people who killed Tutsi and they tell you, I didn't hate Tutsi. And you go out there and you interview Germans who killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews and they say, oh, I didn't really hate Jews, etc. Uh, and you have been... You have an experience which is literally mind-changing, I believe. Mm -hmm. Even though these are great people and I, I, I love them dearly, I think they're wrong. And I'm trying to show them not just that the legal framework is partly responsible for false testimony, and I believe it was false testimony. But we actually have evidence. We have tape recordings of what some of these uh, people in Germany said at night in their barracks after they were imprisoned, in which one of them boasts, he says, I, I told them that I didn't hate Jews at all. Man, I only, my only regret is I didn't kill more. <laughs> wow. And the British gave us that gift. That's Of the wild. transcripts of those conversations. And there are other, you know, we have a lot of other evidence of that. So I, 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 the, on that project, what I'm saying to my colleagues is this. We all go out into the field to interview people and do oral history with the Hippocratic Oath in our back pocket. And for oral historians, it says, above all, do no harm to the person you're interviewing. But if you think doing no harm to the person you, you're interviewing means you have to believe what they tell you and accept what they tell you and publish it as if they're telling the truth, there's another moral injunction that you forgot. And that injunction is do no harm to the survivors. Do no harm to the group that was destroyed. You must think about your duty to truth and your duty to the fact that these people were killed with gross cruelty. They were not simply executed. They were tortured. They were raped. They were cut up with machetes. They were impaled with bamboo sticks so that uh, their uh, pain and suffering would last for days. They were not given quick mercy deaths. That took time. That meant time away from family. That meant time away from the fields and the cattle. It was done with care to workmanship and meticulously committed. You think people did that simply because they thought they'd be killed? I don't agree. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's one project. fantastic. Okay, the other project the is a quick one. It's a more recent project. I want to understand better through a research-based study that I'm doing right now with a very fine young man who's second year, going to his third year of law at Oxford, who's from Montreal, and who volunteered to help me do some research. I want to know what are the common features of countries that, whose soldiers have committed war crimes that choose to prosecute those soldiers and hold them to the law of war, Geneva Conventions and other laws of war. How many 
countries, how many governments have prosecuted their own soldiers and held them to account seriously? Turns out very, very, very few. Why, what are the characteristics, what are the motives for the governments that do do it and those that refuse to do it? And what can we learn about establishing a future system in which soldiers are educated to not follow orders to do those things? I'm not talking about random cruelty here. I'm talking about systematic, sustained, organized cruelty. And we're learning some interesting stuff. And it's very interesting because... What are the patterns? Is well, it, is it main, well, the main... pattern is 99% of the states whose soldiers have committed war crimes and crimes against humanity don't prosecute them or don't prosecute them seriously. One of the countries that paid the most attention to a grievous war crime is Israel. In the case of Sabra and Shatila. So in the early 80s in southern Lebanon... The Palestinian camps were raided by the soldiers of the Christian Falange militia immediately after their leader was assassinated by either Hezbollah or one of the other groups that existed in southern Lebanon from the other side. And uh, this group of uh, Falangist militia was being helped by the government of Israel and the army of Israel because they were patrolling in southern Lebanon to keep the area secure from Hezbollah and other militias that were committing acts of terror in Israel and also on the border with Israel and southern Lebanon when Jewish soldiers were present. The government of Israel was put in the spotlight by the murder of thousands of people and the wound, murder and wounding of thousands of Palestinians at the camps at Sabra and Shatila. Israel had observation posts on the outskirts of those camps that with powerful binoculars could, did observe what was happening. And Israeli observers radioed into headquarters and informed in real time while the killings were underway the Israel, Israel Defense Force leadership and the government of what was happening with the thought that they would be ordered to stop it. But that whole night, there was no, no order to stop it. And they were told to just wait until the morning for further orders. In the meantime, all these people were being killed. So the Kahan Commission, Kahan was the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Israel, was created under the leadership of a right-wing government of Israel, the Begin government, that was still in power in the early 80s, and took testimony from all the senior Israeli army commanders as well as others, and wrote a 300 or 400-page report, which it delivered to the government in good time, which recommended that Rafi Aitan and the future prime minister of Israel as well, Ariel Sharon, who was then uh, leading uh, real Israel army, etc., and others, should be thrown out of the military or stripped of their rank or lowered in their rank or barred from serving in any future army post, etc., and came and said, this, this, these actions are a moral offense to the people of Israel and the world, which we cannot ignore. We must act. We must say we are not them. 
the moral legitimacy of Israel depends on punishing those officers who fail to intervene. Not so much for what they did, but uh, permitting the Falange militia to go into Sabran Shatila immediately after their leader was assassinated, saying we didn't anticipate there would be any killing because they had never done it before when they had visited any of the refugee camps. We never thought they'd do anything like this. Is unbelievable. Wow. You had to know it was going to happen, and therefore these punishments should follow. And, and the second reason we have to do it is not just our moral obligation, it's also a necessity from the point of view of the honor of the Israel Defense Forces, the honor of their arms. This blemish cannot be left to stand. We cannot claim that our soldiers are honorable if we don't punish this behavior. So they did. Hmm. Very different than Cali and Milai. And Nixon made a mockery of the investigation of Milai. And after his conviction, Cali was sentenced to house arrest, and then he was given a pardon by Nixon before he left office. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's um, it, 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 Sharon ended up becoming a dove. I mean, he, Yes, he did. His yeah. son uh, lost a, an eye uh, to a sniper in the October 73 war when Sharon was a hero. And <clears throat> Sharon became a man who was – actually, I'm sorry. It's a mistake. He became a dove for other reasons. I'm speaking about the son of Azar Weizmann, mm. who was injured in the war, who also be, was a hawk who became a dove and who I actually met. Uh, and uh, the two of them became doves, having been among the most uh, vigorous hawks mm -hmm. in the, uh, is, uh, among the Isra Israeli uh, military and political elite because pragmatism dictated that they had to become doves. Yeah, it's it's interesting for your your second project because yes. a friend of mine is right now. He he's quite I'd say he's pretty sort of center right, mm -hmm. uh, but he's quite he's very very supportive of the military. Yeah, he's American, and he's working on a project right now which is trying to stop mm -hmm. the convictions mm -hmm. of a number of uh, of a number of U.S. soldiers. Mm -hmm who committed atrocities mm -hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And his his whole take is that um, these people were taken away from their families. They were just, a lot of them were just uh, National Guardsmen, or they were just doing, and they, they just kept having their their tour of duty renewed mm -hmm. again and again True. and again. They, they so, did. And so they were not supposed to be there for very long. It doesn't justify and, walking into somebody's home and murdering yeah, and raping them. And, uh, and so a lot of them basically snapped mm -hmm. and just they, and he, his point is like, so that these people like... were not supposed to be there mm -hmm. for three tours. They had kids that didn't even like recognize the them. And they're, yeah, and, very, and, very, and similar. Captain, and, and, very, and very his, similar. Very, very similar. And, and, we now know this was systematic in the case of Vietnam. It was part of a larger project. And it wasn't just uh, My Lai and a few other villages or one battalion. It was a lot. It was part of a systematic program of repression. Well, thank you very much, John. Yeah, it's been very thank interesting. you so much for coming on. And, it's uh, great to see what you're doing. That is a great honor. So, for all right, me too. Take care. Okay.